0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Yelmer Voss about his book, Congo in the Age of Empire, 1860 to 1913, The Breakdown of a Moral Order, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2015. Dr. Voss is lecturer in global history at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Voss, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak on your podcast.
1: It's a, it's a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: I wonder if you could begin uh, the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, sure. So I'm, uh, I was born in the Netherlands and raised in the Netherlands. Uh, I studied at the University of Amsterdam where I did my undergraduate uh, degree, in, which was at the same time a master's degree at the time. Uh, Actually, not in history, in political science, uh, where I got interested in uh, themes from historical sociology, like state formation and revolutions and political violence. Um, From there on, I went to the University of London, first to the London School of Economics, uh, where I started my PhD uh, under the supervision of John Kent. Uh, And during the PhD, I moved to Uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, where I worked uh, under the supervision of uh, Professor William Gervais Clarence Smith. Uh, After the PhD, I did a postdoc first at Emory, working on the uh, slave voyages uh, database, with which which I was involved already during my PhD. Did a postdoc at the University uh, University of the North of Lisboa. uh, uh, before I, I mean, after that I, I moved on to I got my first academic job so to say at Old Dominion University in Virginia and a few years ago I moved uh, back to Europe and um, started my new job at the University of Glasgow and that is me in a nutshell <laughs>
0: Um, how do you came to be interested uh, in the Congo and or in the history of the Congo kingdom and how do you came to write this book
1: yeah so that's a, that's a sort of a, a long story which I will try to sort of keep keep short I mean it's it's in a way by by chance uh, happenstance um, I started my uh, doctoral research with, a, with an interest in uh, political violence and anti-colonial resistance, and I wanted to do a sort of a comparative study of, of, of major uh, anti-colonial movements in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then my supervisor at the time, uh, Professor John Kent, he told me I, I was I was suggesting like, like to compare Algeria with Mozambique and Angola. And he said, pick one. And I started with Angola. I started reading into the history of Angola. And what I found is that uh, uh, sort of the early colonial history of Angola was was very poorly studied. Um, There were studies, of course, by uh, people like Gilles Diaz, uh, Clarence Smith himself, my my later supervisor, and and, uh, uh, Linda Haywood, for example. Uh, but overall, there was, was uh, sort of a little knowledge about the early colonial formations uh, in, in Angola. So you have that odd situation, actually. Uh, like, I don't know, a decade ago or so, uh, Richard Reed published this article in the Journal of African History lamenting the lack of uh, interest in pre-colonial African history. In the case of Angola, you almost have the, the opposite situation where there are certainly now more studies of, of pre-colonial uh, or proto-colonial history uh, in Angola, including an, an expanding field in uh, uh, in Brazil. Than of say the post-slave trade and the and the later colonial history of Angola. But there are notable developments. So, for example, the, the studies by uh, Jeremy Ball and Todd Cleveland, and and uh, very soon a very interesting book by. Samuel Kogge will come out on on the medical history, uh, medical history in in colonial Angola. Um, But that that history was then when I started uh, and and still is, uh, I think, uh, sort of understudied. So I decided, okay, I want to go back into that history. And I got fascinated by by this event uh, that was there in the literature that was sort of mentioned and 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 described uh, which was the uh tulanta buddha uprising in uh, 1913 in northern angola in the congo kingdom i mean this was uh this looked like a, a an uprising uh, against labor exploitation it spread very quickly over uh, a wide area in northern angola actually it linked up with different sorts of separate revolts that were taking place And it lasted for several years. So it was a a sort of a major event in uh, early colonial Portuguese colonial history. Uh, And there were apparent connections to the later anti-colonial nationalist movement, which uh, turned out actually to be quite uh, spurious. And uh, that's also one of the sort of points in my book, how I end my book and saying like this uh, these connections are are not really there. Um, So I set to work, uh, wrote my PhD, and and that was later revised uh, into the book. Um, uh, The the difference sort of with with sort of what what I learned in the process is that that revolt um, in trying to explain the revolt or as as it's called in Angola itself, it's more the the war of Buddha. it was necessary to place this in a longer history of Congo interaction uh, with different forces of empire. Uh, so starting around uh, 1860, as I explained, in the book when Angola was transitioning out of the export slave trade. So so I became more interested sort of in the deeper historical background to these revolts and rather their place in, in the sort of the longer or the later uh, sort of memory of it and the connections that might or might not exist with the uh, sort of the anti-colonial uh, resistance movements of the 1950s and 60s uh, so yeah that's how I how I came to write this book
0: so, uh, so as a means of, of sort of diving into the book can you give us um, or the readers a little bit of background of, of that sort of like uh, preceding history like that uh, that uh, how did the Portuguese, uh, and, and this is something that I think a lot of uh, uh, of listeners or people who sort of just casually read African history uh, don't quite understand. you know they, they, we tend to think that uh, one day they declare themselves a colonial power and so it all started. but but as, as, as you uh, detail in the book, uh, it, this is a process, you know, it doesn't happen uh, quickly. So how, how what is uh, sort of the process by which? Uh, we see the beginning of this early presence uh, of Portugal uh, culminating in its becoming like a more official colonial power.
1: Yes, so Portugal had a long presence on the coast of Angola. Um, uh, and, and, and it's in it, 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 it sort of Portuguese or Angolan, uh, the history of Angola and other parts of uh, sort of uh, Africa with, with, with Portuguese influence, this is always a bit problematic, like how do, how do you call this sort of presence? Is it already sort of a colonial presence? How do you then distinguish it from sort of the later sort of the, the 20th century cl- colonialism? So I think the, 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 the proper term to use would be sort of proto colonialism. So you have a, a sort of a minimal Portuguese presence in on the coast mainly, but in Angola also uh, and the same thing was happening in, in Mozambique. Uh, but also sort of with, 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 with uh, fortified settlements in the interior. They were really sort of isolated spots, but had, of course, a tremendous influence on, on uh, social and political life in, um, in Angola. So they exerted a lot of influence uh, and therefore you, you can call it sort of proto-colonialism. But at the same time, these, these, this total sort of presence was very sort of Africanized and very dependent on, on, on African alliances. Uh, so in, in in a sense it was a, it was a feeble presence but also a uh, uh, a very influential presence now from that base uh, particularly then uh, around 1860 or when the when the slave trade was coming to an end uh you see portugal trying to expand its 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 sphere of influence in in uh, parts of angola uh they do that partly in response because of uh, the presence of, of other international powers um uh, on the coast of angola notably uh, in northern angola it's it, it's the british who are there and then later uh, you get the uh, uh, the uh the congo association of uh, of king leopold of belgium that become really sort of threats to angola's presence in in uh, in northern angola so they try to get their foot in uh because they 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 have this history of sort of claiming uh, a particular rights over over uh, over over certain areas, and uh, earlier on they have tried to sort of establish a presence in in Cabinda. Um, But this is it. It, it really expands uh, after or sort of in the middle of the 19th century, um, and. The Kingdom of Congo was a a central element in their strategies to to gain influence. So they had an old uh, they had contacts with with the king. I mean, these these go back uh, a a long time Um, and they tried to sort of use their their uh, their connection with the Kingdom of Congo to uh, to show to other international powers like look, this is actually where, where we are. Uh, And they also tried to use the king to uh, uh, to start claiming uh, particular domains uh, for well, in the the Portuguese view, of course, for their own political purposes. For 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 the king, uh, it was an opportunity to 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 extend his own influence in particular areas in which he was uh, often very uh, unsuccessful. So but that started in the in the mid 19th century or 1860 in particular, when uh, when 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 the Portuguese intervened in a a succession struggle in in the Congo Kingdom. Um, And from there on, you see a gradual extension of Portuguese influence. And then when the Berlin conference uh, happens in uh, 1884, 1885, actually Portugal gains sort of international uh, Rights over over this area, and then you st- sort of see the more familiar uh, process of, of colonial domination really picking up.
0: So, in in at this juncture, when um, uh, when the Portuguese uh, decide to intervene in, in this um, uh, succession struggle. Can you tell us about uh, uh you know going into like the initial chapter of your book? Uh, tell us about uh you know what what was happening at the Congo Kingdom. You know what uh, uh how did it function? How it, what was it place in in uh, its place in this particular region? Uh, and how is it that this this particular uh power struggle that we see uh, the Portuguese sort of like weighing in? Uh, what what changes it this is signaling in, in in terms of the history of the kingdom itself
1: yes uh, thanks that is that is a very good question um, well as I described in that first chapter of the book uh, what I try, first of all try to to, to to do in that chapter is is, is explain uh, how we should look how we should understand uh, this this African kingdom um, the Portuguese have particular views. They talk about kings as if they are sort of powerful rulers uh, that, that that rule over a, a, a certain territory. Uh, that was not the case with with this kingdom. So uh, it's alternatively called a, a title association or an alliance of clans uh, or or a trade corporation. Um, as a, as a as a kingdom or as a chiefdom, it, it was a very small place. It was it was. Uh, San Salvador, uh, the capital of the kingdom, uh, Banza Congo, as it is called in in the Cong- Congolese terms, which was a, a spiritual center, which united uh, powerful elites in uh, the Congo area, uh, from where they from where power emanated. So they got their their their, their chiefly titles uh, from uh, San Salvador. Uh, uh, the symbols of power came from San Salvador. Um, and this this was all organized through a, a Christian cult. So they had adopted Christianity and made Christianity a real sort of the core of the kingdom. So uh, elite families married uh, Christian way. Uh, burials were, uh, were Christian. Uh, the cross was the main symbol of power. Um, so Christianity played an important role in sort of... Uh, uh, keeping that kingdom together uh, as a uh, as why McGaffrey, the anthropologist, has called this a sort of a trade cooperation to keep control over the lines of the long distance trade. Uh, so it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a way to manage power. And that is still how the kingdom functioned uh, around 1860, so the, so it, So on the eve of say this colonial expansion, of Portugal, um, and what changes then? Well, because this kingdom is is sort of Christian, and has had these long relationships with Europe. Uh, you see that they are sort of very open to uh, to to reach out to foreign powers. I mean, first of all, they get their uh, sort of religious symbols from 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 a European religious tradition, uh, but they've also always had these alliances to. Uh, import guns and uh, material culture and uh, people get educated uh, in in, uh, Portuguese schools. They travel to Europe. Um, So you could say, for example, that that this 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 kingdom had this sort of a long history of of what uh, Jean-Francois Bayard, the French political scientist, called extraversion. So it's always sort of looking out and uh, when uh, the king uh, Henrique II died in, in 1857. Uh, there was a, a, a struggle to succeed him. And uh, one party uh, seemed to be reaching out to uh, French traders that were established in the Congo River, and another party of uh, the late who of, of the later king uh, who, who titled himself Pedro V. Uh, reached out to Portugal. And that is where sort of Portugal uh, intervenes in that struggle and makes sure that their ally, uh, uh, Pedro, uh, becomes, becomes the new uh, king of Congo. Another way to look at this is that because Pedro only comes onto, onto the throne uh, with the help, with the military support of Portugal, He becomes their dependent. And what you see then at this very moment is uh, what what Colin Newbury has called sort of a reversal of of patron-client relationships. So he explains that in previous periods, Europeans were often dependent on uh, their African allies for protection, uh, for trade, sort of the negotiation that was taking place between Europeans and Africans was for a long time done sort of on equal terms or often on the coast, Africans were sort of the dominant party. What you see here is a reversal. So the King of Congo comes to power, claims the throne, and becomes very dependent on uh, his Portuguese backers. Um, and they gradually sort of gain influence, more and more influence uh, on, the, on, this, uh, on this kingdom. Um, I I forgot a little bit where you were with your question.
0: No, 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 that's okay. I I just was trying to sort of like set that, you know set set a little bit of the scene, you know, and like, like exactly how the Portuguese why and 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 by which means they they uh they choose to intervene and and. and uh, in, in this struggle, and like you said, it's it's in a way it, it has to do with them themselves trying to um, sort of increase, uh, expand their their influence here, and on the other hand, uh, uh, Pedro, like you said, uh, uh, finding a way of, of succeeding or, or being successful in in this in, in this struggle. Uh, so we, we can see the the motivations on both sides of why they, they this entanglement sort of gets started, um, and, uh, and and I guess we can. Sort of also see uh, in chapter two when you start telling us a little bit what was the uh, sort of the the more uh, socioeconomic setting that uh, that encouraged both of these parties to enter into this um, into this um, um, sort of like relationship. Or how is this? It's very interesting in a way to see, for instance, in chapter two how you start to explain uh, the context of the post slave trade uh, economy. You know how this starts to change. And in some ways, how is it that these two parties try to benefit uh, from this uh, changing economic setting? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, what is what is happening economically that enables um, this new relationship to to evolve? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so the the that that sort of economic history is, is sort of a, uh, a, a sort of a second storyline uh, in the book. So the first is one. This is the sort of the the renovation of 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 uh, a Christian kingdom uh, so this is all the Christian kingdom uh, under in this early colonial period sort of uh, uh, sort of rebuilds itself. Um, and that's that's we can talk about uh, uh, that uh, a bit later. That comes particularly up in, 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 in chapter three, but it runs also throughout the book, basically um, the important Important changes in, in, uh, in Northern Angola um, uh, have to do indeed with sort of the, the, the emergence of, of new forms of trade. So this is an area that was, was long involved in, uh, in the Atlantic slave trade uh, that, that in this corner of Africa uh, really only came to an end in, uh, in uh, 1867. Uh, with uh, the last uh, ships that left the Congo River for uh, for Cuba, um, and until that point, there is there is really not much going on in terms of export economy. Now, I also make uh, the point in the book like export trade is one way to look at Congo society, but of course, export trade uh, only affects that society to, to a certain extent. Uh, so this is largely still sort of an agricultural society. Uh, in which, uh, which, which is, uh, uh, I mean, it, the whole area is sort of affected by the by the by the impact of the of the export slave trade. But there are of course, many people who who don't participate in that at all. Um, so the sort of trades that come up after the eighteen uh, sixties are uh, are first the ivory trade, one well, which is a which is a trade that has been going on for a bit longer, but really picks up. Uh, in the 1860s uh, and 70s, um, and then in the 1870s, what you also see coming up is the is the export trade in rubber. And uh, for a while, Angola uh, becomes uh, sort of the, the the major rubber supplier uh, uh, in Africa to European traders, uh, and Congo played this, its its part in that. Um, so the rubber was was incredibly important, and 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 the the, the point that I try to make in the book is sort of how this then affected sort of the, sort of the working lives of of um, uh, well particularly uh, African men in this domain. Uh, so this rubber had to be carried uh, uh, on head uh, or well practically more shoulders. Uh, so they have these shoulder baskets, w- which, uh, by, which, which caravans of men carry to the coast. Uh, and that really, on a yearly basis, sort of uh, involved the labor of, of thousands of men uh, who walk uh, sort of for months from uh, interior places of trade where, where, where rubber is collected and then traded uh, and, and brought uh, down to the coast. Um I said that is a fundamental history because it it, it uh, for many Congolese men, this was sort of the, the sort of their, their, their main exposure to sort of dealing with Europeans. Um, and particularly also when uh, sort of a lot of the the what, what were called trade factories, which are really tr- sort of trade houses, uh, stores on the coast, uh, began to move inland. Uh, and again, just like the Portuguese are looking uh, to San Salvador and Bansa Congo as a site to sort of expand their political power, uh, the first trade houses that move in from, uh, from the Congo River uh, to the north move in uh, into the interior, they also open up stores in, in San Salvador. And then what you see is also a shift, say, from independent caravan trade to Africans starting to carry for uh, European uh, trade houses, um, they did that often, uh, sort of also on a free basis. So they negotiated often then through their 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 elders uh, contracts with uh, uh, with um, European traders. Uh, this was relatively well paid labor. Uh, this was also sort of honorable labor. Um, this was not, say, slave labor. But what you do see over time, uh, and that's sort of a conflict that comes out uh, in the book, is that when when more and more European trade houses move inland and they move deeper inland, uh, there was sort of a conflict between sort of African control over labor and Africans trying to set, sort of organize their own uh who were used to organizing their own independent rubber caravans and these european traders who who need more and more of african labor and that happens precisely at a time when also uh, the portuguese colonial state is expanding its influence inland um, so that goes sort of in tandem and starts intervening in the recruitment uh, process uh and when that happens uh, the, the process becomes partly violent. Uh, so on paper, the contracts uh, sometimes are still uh, fairly lucrative. And uh, the payment was, was, was fairly good. Uh, but at the same time, you see that a lot of men are being recruited uh, by force. Um, the fundamental point that I sort of, or the fundamental contrast that I try to bring out in the book is that African men associated sort of labor in the colonial economy very much with with portraits, portraits Sorry, so with transporting, uh, and you see that, for example, also in the way that during the the uprising or in the aftermath of the uprising, uh, when uh, there is this big discussion between uh, uh, the the sort of what in colonial language are called sort of the rebel chiefs, um, and the missionaries and the and the authorities in that discussion. Uh, the main rebel leader, uh, Tulante Buta, would always talk about workers as carriers. Uh, That was the term for for workers, whereas the the work that was at stake, like the the problem then, was no longer carriage, it was about plantation labor. But a worker who would go out to a plantation was called a carrier. So there is this this major experience um, often sort of uh, beneficial for for African men to work in the caravan trade. And that experience came to an end when the rubber trade imploded uh, after 1910. Uh, A couple of factories also leave uh, San Salvador. Uh, Employment in the caravan trade uh, is no longer uh, that much available. And that's exactly the point when uh, Portugal tries to recruit men for plantation labor in the uh, Cabinda enclave. Uh, north of the Congo River, and then subsequently also on a massive scale, uh, an unprecedented scale, uh, the islands of Santome Principe. Uh, and that in a place uh, where um, a Congo was never involved, say, in these forced labor schemes for Santome Principe, which 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 came up in the late 1870s, uh, uh, which really sort of a continuation of the slave trade, uh, which recruited heavily in central Angola. Uh, so Angola was his main supplier of forced labor to some principle for, for decades. But this labor never came from uh, from Northern Angola, or hardly uh, ever from Northern Angola. Uh, it drew on, on central Angola. And what you then see uh, after 1910 is that uh, uh, suddenly, because they have this connection with the King of Congo, they tried to recruit labor in the kingdom, and that is uh, basically a no-go for the African chiefs. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And the third uh, uh, sort of leg of your story, as as you uh, previously said, has to do with um, uh, Christianity and and the way it also sees... um, you know, it, it, there's like you said, is, there's a lot of continuity in, in the way in which uh, Christianity is going to play a role in this story. But there are also a few changes that uh, take place uh, uh, around 1860. Um, uh, can, can you tell us about this? Uh, is kind of like the story that you try to detail in, in chapter three uh, with the arrival of these uh, mission new missionary churches, but like you said that also. Um, sort of draw or, or, or uh, feed off like the existing uh, relationship that, that this region has had with Christianity?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, so the, the Congo kingdom, because of its peculiar political history, uh, was, was always very interested in receiving Christian missionaries. Um, and uh, for a long time, uh, Congo was without a, a permanent presence of, of European priests. They kept the Christian tradition alive by themselves. Uh, that was not a problem. Uh, the problem was that they needed priests for particular rituals, uh, particularly installing chiefs and burials. Uh, so, particular important pl- rituals for political power were dependent on the presence of, 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 of priests. Um, for half a century or so, there hadn't been any. And then suddenly, in uh, sort of the the the, the rush uh, or part sort of the, the prelude to the, to the to the partitioning of Africa, uh, and uh, the, the rush sort of the Christianize Africa, you see Christian missions becoming very interested in uh, well, of course, different areas of, of Africa, uh, but they're also looking at Congo, um, and the first mission that that uh, sort. So, sort of really moves inland is the, is the Baptist Missionary Society from England. Uh, they see San Salvador basically as a, as a stage in a, in a sort of a longer expansion, uh, a deeper expansion inland along the Congo River. Uh, they didn't have plans really to settle for long in San Salvador, but they ended up uh, actually staying while also building, of course, a long line of mission stations. Uh, deep into the Central African interior, along, along the River Congo. Um, but San Salvador was their first uh, station, and for a long time, sort of their main station. Uh, but they were Protestants. And uh, what I try to explain also a bit in that, in that chapter is that, that that caused some confusion between uh, sort of the, the Congolese elites, including the king, uh, and, and the, uh, the Protestant mission because Protestants don't do the same sort of rituals as, as Catholics do. Uh, so the King of Congo was very happy when uh, a couple of years later, the Portuguese decide to send a Catholic mission. They were very suspicious of uh, what the Protestants were doing uh, in that area. Uh, so they sent a very influential missionary, uh, Barroso, to, uh, to San Salvador, but with a very clear political mission as well. So for for the the Portuguese, uh, religion was uh, also political, but in in a very different way, uh, in a sense. Um, So suddenly you have these two missions uh, back in San Salvador, uh, which made the king very happy uh, and uh, his people as well. But what you do see is that so there are are certain sort of uh, Things that happen in in almost the same way as in previous centuries. Uh, so, for example, there's a suspicion towards sort of the, the white missionaries. These missions only become really successful when they manage to train their own uh, evangelists and their own catechists, uh, who then start spreading uh, the Christian teaching uh, out from uh, from San Salvador. Um, but as they do so. Uh, you see also sort of Christianity becoming part of, of social and political identities. Uh, uh, and you see that on a sort of a personal level. So, uh, so you have young men uh, and women who, uh, who see the missions sort of as part of their sort of maybe part of sort of personal strategies. Uh, for young men, particularly, uh, it gains status and they, they, they see these missions as a way of, of upward mobility. So to get educated, to learn skills. Um, and you see a lot of these young missionary men, indeed, later uh, ending up in uh, particular professions and in, poli- in political positions uh, 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 and roles in the government, or what you might say, the government, but, for example, becoming policemen. Uh, but also uh, political identities uh, collectively. So you see uh, particular villages becoming either Catholic or Protestant. Uh, and that in itself is not maybe such a problem, but it, it translates itself also in sort of political rivalry. So, so particular factions within the kingdom uh, that then start fighting for power when there's a succession struggle, for example. Uh, some of these factions are Catholic, other factions are Protestant. Uh, so religion becomes very much say, politicized. Uh, and that's that is sort of a... a, 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 a a theme that comes back uh, yeah, sort of in, in different parts of the book, but it plays a very important uh, role in the uh, the conflict of uh, nineteen thirteen.
0: Uh, maybe this is a, a good time. Uh, there was something about uh, this sort of mingling of uh, sort of religion and politics that I that I uh, that I think sort of affected or influenced your your choice of. Uh, this this concept of uh, the moral community, uh, as opposed to just the moral economy, and and, and you can elaborate on, on that. Why you decided to make that distinction, which I particularly found very, um, uh, uh, very illuminating. I mean, I, I when I when I teach students, um, uh, when I have them read Lonsdale and, and the notion of the moral economy, uh, I I think they they found it they find it sometimes difficult to to. To capture, uh, but your explanation of uh, why the notion of a moral community might be uh, uh, more easier to uh, or easier to to sort of apprehend, I, I I did I did find that that was the case, uh, but I think at the, at this juncture in, in chapter three, when when you start talking about sort of discontinuities and and uh, like the changes and 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 the motivations of people uh, to to join, it seemed to me that uh, it is precisely that you, you're uh, sort of giving us a little story of how this um, sort of moral community starts to redefine itself, like the the relationship not just of. Uh, uh, sort of the elites to the Portuguese but then also the the the, the role that Christianity starts to play uh, in the relationship between the elites and the peoples or, or like the Chiefs and the peoples who follow these Chiefs um, so c- can you explain to us a little bit more how you see this this moral this new moral community sort of taking shape uh, by kind of like bringing in this this old uh, uh, uh Christian um, cult, but at the same time sort of renewing it and, and, and redefining it, even with the arrival of this this uh, Protestants and, 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 and new practitioners of Christianity.
1: Yes. Um, uh, well, first of all, I have to say that moral community, that, that's a concept uh, sort of uh, borrowed from uh, Jonathan Glassman's uh, uh, first book. Um, and I thought that what, that was actually a very appropriate concept for to describe sort of the, the, the community that's that's in the kingdom. Uh, so you have this sort of older interpretation of the kingdom as a as a uh, as a title association or a, um, um, a trade corporation. That uh, for a very long time it functioned like that. Then, during the period of colonial rule, uh, as I, as I explained in the book, it becomes sort of a vehicle for colonial expansion. But to understand sort of the relationships within the kingdom, between the people in the kingdom, I thought, yeah, this is sort of more, this is a moral community um, in the sense that it, it was a very sort of tightly knit community. Uh, basically, everybody in the kingdom knew each other. Uh, so this was no longer sort of a kingdom that was sort of extended over, over very large areas, um, where, uh, where you deal with people that, that you basically never meet, uh, uh through long distance trade. In, instead you have this community of people that, uh, often grew up together, uh, in, in mission schools, uh, that knew each other from, uh, involvement in trade. Um, so it's, it's heavily sort of, sort, sort of personalized. These, these relationships are heavily personalized uh, and, of course, governed by, well, first of all, sort of moral codes that, that exist within a community, but also sort of political codes of conduct uh, and understandings of, of, of sort of what is proper uh, uh, political rule. Uh, these codes are often defined sort of also or or cast in sort of Christian language. And and this is where the the, the missionaries again start playing uh, sort of an important role as as, uh, sort of the missionary teaching becomes a standard uh, uh, sort of to describe uh, proper moral behavior. Um, And that, so that community... I think it's important to understand that this is very much sort of an an, an African community, and that the Europeans who arrive uh, in the kingdom um, from uh, the eighteen seventies onwards, and sort of settle in San Salvador, they're very few in number, and they become all sort of sort of domesticated. They become all part of that of that of that community. Um, so that's uh, uh, a couple of missionaries, uh, a couple of traders, and a couple of people who represent sort of Portuguese rule. Uh, but they become part of the kingdom. Uh, so the moral community was uh, uh, involved Africans and Europeans. Um, uh, but it was very much a so, sort of so an African community. The codes that I sort of the changes that you that you asked about sort of what what what, what is happening is that um, sort of a, for a lot of people the the changes that come with with with, with colonial rule mean that some some of the older uh, ways of of earning uh, status or respect uh, uh, are no longer really valid. They stop sort of uh, have a lot of relevance. So, so previously uh, chiefs would, start, but it continued into the early 20th century. where Chiefs would be invested, for example, in the in the Order of Christ um, and sort of the old Christian symbols were ways to to demonstrate uh, status and power. Uh, what you see happening uh, under colonial under early colonial rule is that particularly young men uh, turn to uh, sort of, sort of more modern European forms of dress. Uh, uh, people who are uh, involved in government uh, uh, like to uh, get their hands on, on, on military titles, um, uh, and uh, and of course police uniforms, that sort of thing. And so 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 there's also a sort of a cultural change taking place uh, with, within the kingdom. Uh, well there is actually a um sort of a, a third way and it's something that we haven't haven't uh, discussed yet uh but to sort of look at this kingdom as, as a vehicle of, of of colonial expansion um but but I'll, I'll i'll pass it on for you to maybe ask a question about it. but that is sort of the the, the, the role of, of african intermediaries in in the colonial system uh, so this kingdom becomes sort of uh, this this sort of a, a way for for uh, people to place to get positions in this in this expanding colonial world, um, and that is ultimately uh, sort of the way these people behave is what ultimately sort of undermines the moral community.
0: Uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah and, and and I think you're you're uh, right in in reminding me about the the this notion of intermediaries because I think one of the interesting parts about. Um, sort of like, one point that you make at one point in the book is when you talk about in a way what missionaries were allowing uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, inhabitants of the Congo is to, uh, they themselves learned uh, sort of the language of Europeans. Uh, While so much of that relationship had been mediated uh, through the king, it had been sort of the king and, and the elites that had sort of establish this relationship uh, uh, with uh, uh, with Portuguese the Portuguese and, 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 and Europeans uh, as more people uh, start to uh, attend these missions and join these missions and convert maybe uh, they themselves saw this as a way of like like you said learning skills but also learning how to negotiate mm-hmm. uh, their entry I- into this new colonial order. And, and, and like you will say later in and when we talk about the actual uh rebellion, uh this brought problems, you know, this this uh, you know who had the, the power to negotiate and what kind of negotiations were, were taking place, uh was one of the contentious issues. Um so before we get to that though, I, I wonder if, if you can tell us a little bit about now the very specific situation that takes place uh by the installation of 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 pedro uh, in chapter 4 you you give us a more detailed uh, explanation of this uh, the, the 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 portuguese intervention in this secession struggle and how that uh, again sets up the, the 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 place of 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 how uh, this relationship, uh, like what you mentioned earlier, like this more maybe more dependent relationship of 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 uh, the, the Congolese elites uh, to the Portuguese, uh, and and the more formal start of the colonial period uh, in this area.
1: Yes, so that is that is that relates to the, the sort of the the question really of sort of what colonial rule meant in 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 Congo, um, and sort of, of these three elements of, of empire or of colonialism so sort the of trade, religion and politics, I mean, the colonial state was was uh, by far the most problematic. Um, so uh, the Congolese welcomed these missionaries. Um, uh, they welcomed traders uh, and they could deal with that. Uh, but ultimately what they couldn't deal with was the sort of the, the growing intervention of, of, of Portuguese colonialism in their domain, although they had welcomed the Portuguese as well, Uh, so the King Pedro V was very happy with the military support he received from from the Portuguese, but the Portuguese more and more intervened in their succession struggles. At one point, they also uh, say, actually, hey, we don't want that uh, title of king anymore. Uh, That is way too powerful a title for somebody who has sort of a function in the colonial system. So so officially they demote the king to to being a, a, a what they call a native judge. Um, except in reality, that's not happening because uh, the Congolese themselves look upon this this person as as their king. Uh, so despite the loss of the title of the king, the, the, the he would still receive also from Portugal uh, the, uh, the the symbols of, of royal power. Uh, so the ropes and the staff and uh, all that. Um, But Portugal starts interfe- intervening. They start building their, their, their power from uh, uh, particularly after, after the Berlin conference. And so they, they, they finally sent out uh, uh, a, military, uh, a military presence or an, an administrator also to, to, to San Salvador. Uh, and every time now that there is a succession struggle, the Portuguese uh, really uh, sort of influence the outcome of that. Uh, So there's a negotiation between parties. uh, There are different contendants. uh, But Portugal clearly has uh, a a particular favorite. And that favorite is since basically Pedro V came to power in uh, 1860, uh, somebody of the Agua Rosada family. And the Agua Rosadas are everywhere. Uh, so they also take up the positions in, uh, well, in trade, uh, they, they, they get trained both in the Protestant and in the Catholic mission, uh, schools, uh, they take up, uh, their roles as, uh, sort of as policemen in San Salvador, uh, they become brokers for, uh, for the Portuguese state in Northern Angola. So when, uh, for example, a new place needs to be opened up for trade, they send out a particular member of the Agua Rosada family to negotiate that with chiefs, uh, they become involved in labor recruitment. So the Agua Osadas are are there. Uh, so they really see this. I mean, for them it worked, right? I mean, they 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 uh, they effectively make the Congo Kingdom a vehicle for colonial expansion, um, and it is they who served uh, often then as 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 uh, african intermediaries now so in chapter four uh this sort of sort of drives at the election of um uh um the, the the sort of the sort of the final or the king who uh who has his downfall so manuel martins Kiditu, uh, who is who gets elected in 1911 again after long negotiations between different factions and the Portuguese trying to influence the outcome, uh, the Protestants saying, no, we want this one. The Catholics saying, no, we want that one. Um, ultimately, Kidito is installed. So Kidito himself is uh, trained in the uh, in the Catholic mission. Uh, he has been a trader. Uh, he has been uh, he has been to Luanda. Uh, um, he's a sort of this, this uh, Embodiment of of all these uh, sort of new colonial uh, uh, developments. Um, He gets installed at the moment when uh, sort of the the kingdom is under stress. I mean, the the hot tax has been introduced uh, several years earlier. Um, So the caravan trade is slowing down, and the Portuguese are starting to recruit uh, labor for. for the Cabinda plantations. And then uh, one or two years later, uh, uh, they tried to recruit labor for uh, Sant'Omey Principe. The kingdom is under stress. Uh, The previous kings, uh, the Congolese people were not uh, always happy with. Um, So when Kidito gets installed, they do that on very specific conditions um, that really sort of circumscribe um, his powers uh, and also tell him how he should behave and the way they tell that sort of the, the, the language in which that is written. So that was a short sort of written statement, a very simple language, but um, which referred back to all the traditions of, of political power. So it was really rooted in sort of this, sort of this older uh, uh, moral economy, you might say. And um, a list of conditions, and the final condition was: if you don't uh, follow these rules, uh, uh, you will be deposed. It's as simple as that. Um, and if I could rewrite the book, I would really sort of sort of sort of organize the, the, the narrative around uh, this this character Kiritu. Uh although we don't know that much about him um i mean he 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 sort of the i mean he symbolizes all all these developments that take place in in the congo and he sits really at these uh sort of this 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 clash between sort of old traditions and new traditions um and and it's there for example there are pictures of him uh, also of his installation so this is a man who who, who wears uh, or sp- seems to be most comfortable wearing uh, a european suit and has these leather leather shoes Uh, but then he gets also uh uh, he becomes king so he he puts uh the royal robe on top of his suit uh has a staff in his hand puts on the the traditional uh hat uh for kings uh so he sits at this juncture of of two uh two traditions and he struggles with it. And that becomes clear. So there's also an interview uh, with him sort of in the inquest of what went wrong uh, in 1913. He's interviewed in 1914 and uh, along with several other witnesses. But he was, of course, the key witness. And in that interview, I mean, it's written down in in this this, this document. Like, I mean, he has a nervous breakdown. I mean, he 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 really struggled with with uh, with what had happened uh, uh, later on. I mean. For two years, uh, he is a very conflicted ruler. I mean, he, he represents on the one hand, or he has to represent his people. But at the same time, uh, he he has to work for the Portuguese. I mean, they installed him also to be a negotiator on behalf of the people with the Portuguese overlord. And he he, he couldn't manage. And, and perhaps you could say that was always an impossible role because that, that the Portuguese would, would start demanding more and more uh, uh, of him uh, and uh, Portuguese interest uh, conflicted with the interests, particularly say of the, uh, the traditional African chiefs. Well that got us on a, on a different track, I think but
0: <laughs> I don't know, but, but, but in a way, I mean it's like as, as we're uh, coming to to basically the, 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 you know the, the, the rebellion and the moment in which this takes place. Uh, you ever told us a little bit about, uh, you know, the uh, one of the reasons why this conflict started to sort of build up had to do with sort of like the labor requirements, the changing labor requirements. Uh, the uh, one point, point that uh, you also make is uh, how one of the reasons why these new labor requirements became so oppressive had to do also with uh, the imposition of new taxes, uh, which hadn't been um, so there's this this there's this building up of demands uh, on the part of uh, as part of the expansion of Portuguese uh, colonial rule, uh, which do become um, uh, very untenable uh, for those uh, uh, in, in charge of trying to negotiate them. Uh, and I, I guess from from that notion of the negotiation, uh, the, the the requirement that the king negotiate, uh, it, it's interesting because, like you said, it, it was. He had to negotiate with uh, new demands, but this notion of having to be in charge of negotiating with Europeans was not, it, that was part of his job as like the old king. Um, so uh, as, as in the context of the rebellion, which is what, what you sort of detail in chapter six, um, can you tell us a bit how, how all these like tensions between the old and the new and, and the the attempt to sort of uh, rebuild the, what had been broken, And in other words, uh, we see in that, like the, in that inquest, uh, like you said, and in that speech, you, you talk a lot about the speech that Buddha gives here. Uh, h- how do we see this sense of w- what is broken, what needs to be rebuilt? Uh, where did uh, the king failed, and, and what was it? What, what what was it that we were trying to achieve in this rebellion?
1: Yeah. So, so as, as you mentioned, there is this, uh, uh, well, there's, there's this is transcript of the, of the, of the, what was called the war palaver. Uh, so in, in December, 1913, uh, uh, over a thousand, uh, troops, African troops, uh, organized by, by, uh, Buta and others, they, they descend on, on San Salvador. Uh, they burn the town down, etc. so they, they, they scare uh, 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 the the, Port- the, well, the Portuguese administration. was just sort of one or two guys there. Um, so so they 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 um, uh, they lay siege basically on the on the Congo capital, and then uh, in the days after, there there's a negotiation taking place with the king in hiding. Uh, so, the, so on behalf of the king, you have the Portuguese administrator who, who sits there basically as a defendant, um, uh, and this is a, it is a palaver that, that takes place over two days, and that palaver is really sort of what what uh, sh- how that shows how much the Congolese saw everything that was sort of happening in terms of colonial expansion uh, as an expansion of the of the kingdom. Uh, so they don't uh, blame the Portuguese administrator so much. They, they put the blame squarely on the king. And that was sort of an important way for me to see sort of, okay, so how is this then? How is this whole process of colonial expansion actually happening and, and being perceived uh, in the Congo Kingdom? Now, some of the, uh, the complaints that are expressed, the grievances that are expressed uh, during during that palaver have, have to do clearly uh, with labor. So some of the things come out very clearly. And I can already say sort of some of the things, you also know that things that are happening, but that, that the, sort of the archival documentation uh, hasn't sort of allowed me to sort of really uh, figure out in, in depth. I mean, there's a dimension here that that, for example, doesn't, this had a lot to do also with, diminishing power of African chiefs uh, vis-a-vis their male subjects, but also vis-a-vis their female subjects. Um, And uh, so part of this has to do sort of with with, with labor relations. Uh, How is labor organized? Uh, How much control do the chiefs still have over labor? Uh, And some of it is then also has to do with social relationships and um, uh, how these were changing in these early decades of colonial rule. Um, That is going on, um, but that is something that, unfortunately, I haven't been able to to fully document. Uh, What does come out, though, uh, in the rebellion and in the transcripts that exist of it, uh, is this idea of moral breakdown. And that, that happens at three levels. Uh, so, so one level is a breakdown in the in the relationship between Portugal and Congo, the understanding that they had about uh, sort of the colonial ar- ar- arrangement that they had with each other. And that changed. These terms changed when Portugal introduced the hot tax and then uh, imposed labor demands. Uh, and that's where sort of the the uh, an existing moral economy changes to, to talk in uh, uh, sort of John Lonsdale's terms, as as you said. The mm-hmm. um, second way, and and I mean, let me make clear. I mean, the, the 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 hot tax. Well, the hot tax was negotiable, also, except that the the tax rates constantly went up. But when it was collection time, uh, uh, I mean, some people couldn't pay and, and and colonial administrators on the ground knew that and they try to often tell the superiors like we have to we have to demand less at the same time, tax was, of course, a way to push people into labor uh, contracts. Uh, so so it, 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 it works in that way. Uh, uh, there's, it works in two ways. Um, but the real problem is is when text really gets connected to the recruitment of plantation labor and the whole process becomes incredibly violent uh, so i described that uh, sort of in well, in brief detail in in, in the book um, but because it is so much the sort of the um, uh, the the african intermediaries who uh, are responsible for, for a lot of the violence that takes place. Um, uh, it is, again, the, the chiefs who, who look particularly at the king of Congo, like, uh, how can you let this happen? Uh, and, and and I mean, sort of, even a, I mean, he was in charge, in a way, of, of this process. That's how they see it. Anyway, so that's, that's sort of the breakdown of, of the colonial relationship. Uh, uh, then you have the breakdown, of the relationship between sort of the kingdom and his people so they see sort of the subjects of of, of the kingdom or and that's the first sort of the, the first layer are the the the, the traditional chiefs um, uh, they see the king as as failing in his duty to protect uh to protect the people and failing in his role as guarantor of peace and prosperity so this was what he was installed, uh, for, uh, to sort of bring prosperity back to Congo. And instead they say, like, instead of, uh, sort of improving our economic situation, you go to Cabinda and negotiate with the Portuguese governor, uh, and, uh, 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 the, these, these abysmal labor contracts for Cabinda. And then later you invite them to, uh, to ask for 1500 workers for, for Santo May, um, they also blame the king for uh, authorizing violence in the in the collection of hot tax and in the collection of in the recruitment of, of, of labor. Um, and there's a whole, sort of a whole range of, of activities, sort of government activities that they uh, uh, where they see that the that, that political office has been corrupted. Uh, so from the king downwards. Uh, um, so that's sort of a second level of moral breakdown. And then there's also a third one, which is very personal. And that's the relationship between the king, Manuel Kiditu, and Tulante Buta, the, the main, the, 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 the sort of the leading chief. Um, they know each other. They might've been related uh, uh, by family. I mean, they would certainly have claimed sort of a a, a relationship of of clanship. Um, Buddha has previously worked with Kedito. He has paid taxes. He has provided labor, Uh, but certain things go wrong. Uh, One of Buddha's men gets killed. Uh, Some of the the workers that are sent to Kabinda are are, are not coming back in time. So they 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 start having misgivings about what what is happening in that in that sort of that that uh, that that colonial arrangement. But then, on a personal level, it it, there's there's a breaking of trust, Um, and they they Buddha sees uh, well not only Buddha but Buddha personally uh, uh, very strongly sees Kidito as 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 a traitor, uh, because gidito uh, had ordered at one point at least that's how how they see it had ordered his arrest uh, and so they become clear enemies and that is uh that, that's an important sort of third dimension um that uh, that comes out in this in the, in this revolt um almost to the extent that that you think that if they had managed to resolve their sort of their personal conflict um, this whole event would not have happened. Um, so it's so, so that sort of that personal sort of, or that, I mean, you might almost call it sort of a sort of emotional history yeah, or a history of emotions, um, uh, w- which actually was coming up as a, as a sort of a field, uh, at the time that I, that I wrote this book. I think that actually plays an, a tremendously important role in, in, in the history of, of uh, in the political history of, 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 of the kingdom. Because of this being a, also a moral community where everybody knows each other. Um, so relationships with trust are just incredibly important. Um, I hope I answered the, the question.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I mean, and, and I think in a way it's uh, it ties on uh, exactly with that notion that these are not... Uh, you know these are tight knit communities, and and uh, if even even notions of political uh, legitimacy had are very tied into it with, precisely with trust and with duty and uh, and with serving uh, the purpose by, by for which he had been installed. Um, sort of speaking, a little bit of that, I was wondering if we could start uh, talk uh, if we would just close by talking uh, about your epilogue and how you. Uh, sort of reflect on the ways in which this event, uh, or, mem- or memories of this event, uh, were being remembered, uh, sort of uh, later, and, and and were being sort of written into the history of, or tried to be written into the history of of maybe nation building and decolonization, uh, which is one of the reasons I, I I like you mentioned you 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 were first uh, you. Your attention was called by, by this by this rebellion.
1: Yeah, so so uh, Tulante Alvero Buta, uh, the so the, the main rebel leader, um, uh, is remembered as a national hero in, in 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 particularly so in northern Angola among the Congo speaking the Congo speaking people. Uh, so much so that, that his name was sort of a, a candidate for the, uh, the new university that was built in Louisiana, uh opened about a decade ago or so. Uh, instead, they chose uh, sort of the uh, perhaps more f- internationally, more famous um, uh, uh, heroine uh, uh, Vita, um well known through uh, John Thornton's work, uh, among others. Uh, so that is now the, uh, the university, uh, of Kimpa and not the university of Tulante Buta, but it shows how important, uh, uh an infig- an important figure he was. Um, oral traditions that, that were collected by, uh, Angolan students, um, uh, also some time ago, uh, show that, um, People remember him. Uh, his uprising uh, uh, has been uh, become a very important part sort of Congolese memory in, in relation sort of to, to, to colonial rule. So, uh, but the important thing to remember is that when this revolt happened, there were sort of s- sort of smaller scale uprisings happening all over uh, northern Angola which often had to do with uh, with tax revolts. But then, uh, well, uh, different factors come into play. Buta tried to. uh, So when when first the Portuguese ceded to to the to the rebels demands. But of course, later on, they tried to sort of impose their own uh, will again on the kingdom very quickly, actually. So uh, instead of the king the Portuguese became uh, the target of of the uh, of the war party. Uh, So Buddha's war becomes a war against the Portuguese. Buddha himself tries to connect with these these different uprisings that take place throughout throughout uh, northern Angola. But at the time, actually, uh, well, he wasn't very successful at the time. All these uh, parties were fighting their own battles with the Portuguese. Uh, they were not associated with the Kingdom of Congo, uh, and they had very little interest in the in the specific battle of 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 Dulante Buta. Um, but in later memory, and uh, uh, Buta's revolt sort of being central to to all these skirmishes that, that that are taking place, um, sort of his actions become central to. Uh, to what was going on at the time. Um, so that is popular memory. Then you have in the 1960s, when sort of the first history, sort of the first modern histories of Angola start being written. Um, uh, you have this, this literature that tries to connect sort of these early anti-colonial uprisings. And, and the, the main point of my book is that this was not really an anti-colonial uprising. This was an internal uh, Political conflict within the kingdom, uh, but they see these early uprisings in connection to later uh, nationalist movements. So this way these were sort of early expressions of, of ethno-nationalism, as the term was then. Um, that might have sort of uh, created some feedback into how 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 Angolans have understood uh, this this tradition. Um, There's definitely also so part of the political movements that that came up in the 50s in northern Angola and uh, across the border in in uh, Belgian Congo and a later independent Congo. Uh, the the leaders of of the political movements then uh, were often descendants of of, of uh, 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 characters in in my book. Uh, so, for example, Holden Roberto himself—I mean, the main one, the, the most obvious uh, political, the, the most famous political leader—but there were also smaller movements. But uh, he descended from uh, one of the first uh, uh, mission students of the of the Baptist missionaries. Uh, but there's, so there's a, also Chidito, uh had a—I uh, believe it was a nephew who who was one of the leaders of a nationalist movement uh, within uh, San Salvador. So people themselves sort of have personal connections back to that uh, to that particular episode uh, and that is only of course like a generation or two uh, uh, or two later um, so historically it would be wrong to see Buta as sort of an, an early expression of, of of Congolese nationalism well Congolese in a very narrow sense yes but not in the sense of how how people in the 60s started sort of Having sort of mythical views of, of what this kingdom was, where even in uh, in Kinshasa um, uh, there were there was talk of sort of rebuilding, and ever since, right, into 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 the into the twenty first century, uh, uh, there are dreams sort of of rebuilding the kingdom, uh, but these are really sort of utopian uh, utopian ideals that 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 uh, that have no relevance basically in the concrete a uh, concrete political context in which Northern Angolans nowadays live. Um, so, yeah, he has become sort of a mythical figure. Um, and unfortunately, that's that, that, that is, that is really unfortunate. We know very little about uh, Tulante Buta. Um, um, they're, they're, uh, his palaver is, is, is amazing uh but that is basically that is practically all we know of him his is um, the transcripts that that, that the uh, missionary um students made of his uh, of his palaver uh, that is when he lays everything out and you get to you sort of get to know him uh, a little bit uh, but but who he was otherwise uh There's not much known about him and also not how how his life uh, he was. He was in the end uh, captured and uh, uh, he he died in prison, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, But but uh, after the revolt, there is no trace of him. Not not yet, at least of him in the Portuguese archives.
0: No. well, It's definitely, uh, like I said, uh, like I told you before we started the formal recording, it was very, very illuminating. And I think in some ways, uh, particularly so precisely for that, um, uh, 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 for making the process of sort of like the initial uh, history or the the early history of colonialism, uh, obviously, bring into it the complexity that it had you know it's it's uh like i said it's not it's it's generally seen as this moment but in reality it's, it's a much more complex process that involves intermediaries that involves this sort of rethinking the old of the old and 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 reinventing of the new etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh thank you for that uh, i wonder if if you could just uh uh tell us just a little bit about what you're working on right now uh where we're, we're or have you moved on since since you finished this book
1: yes yes we we've 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 talked already for for so long and there's still so much to say in a way about 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 the book um but um yeah so since then i've moved on to coffee um so i i uh, obviously because of the book i i worked on on, on northern angola uh, and um as you travel to Angola uh, and as you read about Angolan history, you can't escape coffee. I mean, coffee in the colonial period and here again, colonial, including the proto colonial period. So starting in the early 19th century, but particularly in the 20th century, coffee was such a central played such a central role in uh, in the history of 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 northern Angola and throughout Angola uh, through, again, forced labor schemes that pulled people from other people uh, other regions in in Angola to uh, plantations in northern and uh, central Angola. Um so that is and I, so when I worked on this book I I I am particularly when I finished it I thought okay now I want to work on something that was uh, uh really important to uh, uh the people of Angola and on which we know still so very little uh, which is the history their history of of coffee, and that's, um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a double-sided history. I mean, on the one hand, it's a history, again, of of, of, of forced labor uh, and uh, a history of settler agriculture, uh, labor exploitation. And people have remembered it in that way. At the same time, when you speak with people from Northern Angola, they also remember coffee very much as a uh, uh, um, so, as, as, as a as a, as an opportunity i mean people had their own coffee farms uh, and um, build riches based on that so they have a, also a more positive history uh, uh, of of coffee and that's that's something that i try to work out uh, uh, sort of in all its complexity uh, in 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 a, sort of a forthcoming monograph.
0: Well, that sounds uh, like a wonderful project and I hope we're, we will be seeing it soon and we'll have an opportunity to talk about it again. That would be wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Um, I really enjoy it and I hope you have a nice rest of your day. Uh,
1: thank you very much. Thank you for speaking with me. And uh, yes, you too have a wonderful day and take care.